What's going on, everybody? This is Sean of Ross Like Music. And this is the Super Sunny Show. I'm La Molly. This is Blue and Green Radio. Party people, this is Mr. V of Confessions of a Curly Mind, broadcasting through Blue and Green Radio. You're listening to Steve Williams at UK5.org. Welcome to the Blue and Green Sessions. Right, the vibe with DJ Ronnie Ron. Cosmic, Cosmic Radio. Twisted Soul. Futuristica Radio. You're listening to the Blue and Green podcast, and I hope you enjoy what we are going to say. Blueandgreenradio.com Howdy gang, welcome, welcome, welcome. You are tuned in uh, to another episode of the Blue in Green podcast. Uh, my name is Imran. Uh, thank you very much as always for your time and your company. It's very, very much appreciated. Uh, and uh, before we jump into today's episode, a quick reminder that the Blue in Green podcast runs in conjunction with Blue in Green Radio, the online internet radio station that uh, broadcasts from London and hosts shows from across the whole wide world, uh, including Japan, Australia, the States, uh, France and um, of course various parts of the UK so we are uh, immeasurably proud of our our lineup of, of, of just incredible presenters from across the world and we've just got some wonderful wonderful music that we're always championing and always wanting to kind of you know spread the good word of uh so uh, please feel free to check us out at blueingreenradio.com you'll find our radio stream broadcasting uh 24 hours a day seven days a week and you'll also find the full backlist catalog of our podcast episodes as well um today's episode i really couldn't be very much more excited uh to uh to use this platform uh, to officially uh, kind of induct and announce Bob Hill as a part of a, the aforementioned incredible <laughs> DJ and presenter lineup that make up Blue and Green Radio. Um, there is a, a brilliant quote, I hope you won't mind, I don't imagine he'll mind me saying it at all, but uh, our dear, dear friends uh, Simon Air, Simon Schofield from Futuristica Music and Blue and Green Radio, of course, uh, he described Bob Hill uh, as unapologetically enthusiastic about the scene. And um, I think that's a it's a wonderful description. I think you know it, it it's a wonderful description, and I think uh, it's an enthusiasm that I resonate with instantly when I just from talking to Bob. And um, I think just if you've ever tuned into an episode of the Illicit Grooves Radio Show, it's an enthusiasm you instantly resonate with, and I think that 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 is what endears you as a as a host as a presenter uh to people is what we all really strive for in this on this side of the microphone um so we're having the opportunity to to kind of talk to bob on the episode today and hear that enthusiasm and share that kind of passion and those kind of amazing moments those key kind of moments from his amazing career as a uh, from a from pirate radio to to DJing to you know those early informative moments of of uh, connecting with his passion for music and the power of of being able to control a room and share and unify people uh, through through music it's a beautiful thing and to hear kind of how those moments for Bob came together so early and how they those he carries them with him through everything that he currently does and. Um, you know it's it, like i said it's, it's always gonna be something i resonate with and i think with again you know blue and green radio is just is is filled with the passionate uh people just so passionate about uh their craft and their um music and you know just couldn't be more thrilled uh to um 
to yeah to, to have Bob Hill as part of the lineup. So the Illicit Grooves radio show, uh, my friends will broadcast on a weekly basis every Sunday uh, on Blue and Green Radio, starting on the fifth of February, uh, one p.m. till three p.m. weekly. And you, so we'd love for you to check us out at blueingreenradio.com and um, sharing that the, the that celebrative um, and joyous uh, kind of two hours of music because you won't absolutely uh, you won't want to miss one. I guarantee it. Um, so yes we're, we're going to talk to Bob uh, momentarily uh, regular listeners uh, of the podcast will know uh, we feature two songs per episode I'm going to pick two songs one will play now and one at the conclusion of the show I'm going to pick two songs that, that are well t- songs from two projects probably best way to say it that uh, Bob and I have a sort of an equal amount of affections for and um, and I think it was sort of something that kind of bound he and I uh, before we'd even had any kind of contact so we're going to pick something from the AMA catalogue which is uh, an amazing Italian uh, independent based label who we champion so much on Blue and Green Radio as does uh, Bob via Lissa Grooves and um, we're going to play uh, something from Sandra Markovic and her debut solo album through AMA Records called Ascension. I'm going to play the title track. I love it. I love the album so much. I love the song so much. Uh, she's a vocalist, uh, saxophonist, composer. She's just amazing and uh, such a stunning project. So I want to shout out uh, our combined friends over at AMA Records and I want to shout out um, the aforementioned uh, Simon S and our dear friends over at Futuristic Music. And we're going to play something from... Um, um, uh, their 2022 project which had uh, Deborah Jordan uh, uniting with K15 for their stunning album Human so we're going to have something from that one to close out the show as a way to uh, yes to kind of our, our respective affections for each of those and I, I think there were two, two nice song inclusions for the show today um, I'm very much hoping uh, in time to come he doesn't know this but I'm very much hoping Bob will come back and be another guest and uh, be a guest again on our podcast because there's so much stuff I, I was commandeering a lot of his time I think for this conversation there's lots more at which you know before and after the conversation where um, that you're about to hear uh, so yeah I had I had Bob <laughs> I bent his ear for a long time so um, I'm hoping you'll come back again because there's quite a lot we didn't get to discuss and uh, so yes um, either way I very much hope you'll enjoy the episode today and uh, you'll tune into uh, Illicit Grooves uh, radio show Sundays 1 till 3 on Blue and Green Radio thank you so much to Bob for his time thank you guys for listening hope you enjoy the episode today
So how are you right. otherwise, sir? Oh, I'm well. Yeah, I'm well. It's. Uh, Can we it's... still say Happy New Year? I feel like the, the, the time limit is running out, but <laughs> Happy uh, New Year officially to you. <laughs> well, I'm going to say I think it's okay <laughs> because I think if I've got this right, if uh, the Orthodox Christians, the New Year starts around now, uh, oh, Jewish right. New Year's in about a week's time. So... Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, you're right. We could we could find some star alignment uh, throughout the exactly. year that will enable yeah. us to yeah. <laughs> keep yeah. wishing it till April. Yeah. <laughs> did you well, have a uh, nice break at all? Yeah, I did off? actually. Uh, yeah, Christmas was lovely. Actually, oh, um, I spent Christmas Day. I was supposed to. Is my my sister lives in Banbury. My mum and dad live in the northeast, so we were going to converge on my sister uh, and all meet up. But unfortunately, my dad's really quite, well, it's like, he's poorly, but it's all old age poorly. Right, so to be expected, I see, it's, it's a shame, but it is what it is sort of thing. Mm. Um, but it, so it was just too much for them to come down. So I ended up with Christmas Day and I was dreading it because it meant I was on my own because my son and his wife, uh, well, his uh, partner were away. And I thought, oh, is this going to be awful? I had one of the best Christmas days I've had in a long time. Amazing. Yeah, it was just so many people were like, we're not doing anything for Christmas, let's all meet up. So we've got like this local small microbrewery, real ale kind of bar, Mm. and we all met there for a couple of hours, and that closed, and then we all went our separate ways. We're all discussing how we'd left our different joints of meat and whatever <laughs> on a slow cooker and this that, and the other and what we what we're going to eat and um you know so there were some couples there some other singles like myself and we had a lovely time and then we all went off and then my local bar that's right opposite me which is like a live music venue as well and a restaurant upstairs it's a bit like cheers where the bar's downstairs with the live music, right and upstairs is a bar with a restaurant wonderful yeah I, it was open so I went in there and had a few more beers and then came home and my joint of beef was perfect. Wow. That's... Absolutely perfect. Still pink inside, but really soft because it had cooked really slowly. Oh, so uh, meat is the best. Oh, <laughs> isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Wait, it sounds uh, excellent. Yeah, 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 I think so. It's like, I mean, I remember Christmases when I was a kid and there'd be like three generations of both sides yeah. of the family. Uh, you know, mum and dad's side, and we, but no one, I, none of that sort of generation now have got houses big enough to do that in. Right. Uh, there was a period um, in my 20s when my mum and dad, my mum's two sisters, all lived on the same estate where the gardens connected, so they had gates, and that was. They, they were a good couple of Christmases because, in effect, there was enough room in the, between the three houses. There was enough room. And then we would do Christmas Day at, at one of my aunties and Boxing Day at the other. And then my other aunt, who had the slightly smaller house, mm. uh, she would be like the overspill. So, like, breakfast would be split between the three houses. <laughs> but, but Christmas Day and Boxing Day would be one or the other of the yeah. two bigger ones. And but since but I was talking to my sister and we were just saying since the kids have all grown up, I mean they're they're all adults now, getting on with their own lives and planning their own families. It just doesn't seem the same anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, I think Christmas when you've got kids or when you are a kid is great. Yes, yeah, it, uh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, it's it's funny you, you were talking like the family stuff. I'm, I was on your uh, your WordPress uh, listed groove site recently, and um, you've got a really lovely um, uh, the bio section, kind of talks about just what you've been saying um, about you know you as a four year old kind of looking at your uncle in reverence as he's kind of uniting all your kind of friends and family uh, all under one roof with um, with food and drink and he's there spinning records yeah it's a it's a, it was a kind of a lovely description of those sort of formative years for music and how again it was mm. rooted within that kind of family environment what what do you think back of that period how has that kind of impacted you uh well clearly on a personal level it's had a huge impact on you but i suppose that your your introduction to to, to music in that respect as well well, it was, there's several kind of aspects to it. One, it was the understanding of how to, um, obviously, obviously I didn't know this at the time, but I was learning how to put a set together, um, which was, uh, you know, and, and put a set together on the spot, um, which which was one aspect of it, you mm. know, stacking those 10 45s in the right order before you put them on the right. on the spindle. Um, so I was, I clearly picked that up by some kind of osmosis. Um, but also it was that thing of being able to find music that wasn't just what you heard on Radio 1 or Top of the Pops. Um, you know, so I, I was kind of getting experience of, uh, if you like, underground music Mm. is one way of putting it without, again without realizing it and um yeah just sort of um that thing of being aware of your grandparents cultural references as well as your own yeah and and as well as your parents cultural references which back then you had no choice because there was like normally one telly and the old man was in charge of the button right. well there weren't even, there wasn't even any buttons you know the, <laughs> kids, the kids were the remote control yeah. and wherever dad said when um <laughs> So it was kind of in, if I look back on it in a sort of analytical eye, um, if you're open to the cultural references from different generations within your own family, it really does open you up to the cultural references and choices of other people who may be from a different cultural background than you. Mm. And, And it's that thing of, you know, that love of music that understanding of how important music is, but also having the open-mindedness. The only time I would say I didn't have an open mind to music was when I was a gawky teenager trying to be cool. (laughs) And they'd be like, no, I don't like that. I like the first album, but now they're too popular. That kind of, do you (laughs) know what I mean? So, which was all like secretly I did like it, but I just didn't want to, admit you know. <laughs> i do my best to condition myself to remove that kind of we all do it like oh yeah. it, it, that's good for a pop song or that's rubbish but secretly you like it i always try to yeah. remove that that preconceived yeah. like what's cool uh element yeah. from music if i like a terrible song i'm just going to be I'm trying to say i like this song and i'm going to live with it <laughs> and that, yeah. that's just the way yeah. it is <laughs> yeah no it's true i mean it's like you can hear something and not realise who it's by, mm. like it, and then you've got to think to yourself, 
Well, I liked it. I enjoyed yes. it. It was a good, well-written song and well-performed song. Yeah. It doesn't matter who it was by. It doesn't mean I have to like the rest of what they've done. Yes, yeah. But I did like that. Um, but when you're a teenager, sure. you know, like an early 20s, well, late teens, early 20s especially, you have this sort of... You just, I don't know whether it's whether there's a, a kind of a, a sort of sex and gender thing going on there, but I think boys trying to grow into men are constantly trying to find a role for themselves that isn't everything that they've been, you know, the conditioning yeah. we get as men can sometimes mean we double down on things. Yeah. Even, even to a, even to the point where we cut our own noses off to spite our face. Yes. I think that's, and, that's, that there is that distinction, isn't it? I think sometimes I, I can have quite clear memories of, uh, saying uh i really don't like this and or whether it's that or just some whatever the 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 the, the opinion of what you perceive your peers to to have you know that you have to sort of inexplicably share but then sometimes you can yeah. almost double as you say double down on something you know isn't true yeah and that's the yeah. worst moment where you're like why am yeah. i saying this i i don't yeah. feel this way but yeah. You, yeah. you stick with it for some reason yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. And it becomes quite tribal as well. I mean, yeah. the, growing up in the early, I mean, I was 13 in 1980. So basically, the 80s was my teenage years and my mm. youth. And I can remember, especially in the early 80s, how tribal everything was. So mm. when I, I would say sort of 78, 79, no, before then, I was so probably before I went to secondary school in 1978 for some inexplicable reason I can't remember why but I was really into like heavy rock and I still love Black Sabbath now mm. or early Black Sabbath now I think they were just basically a jazz and blues band but, right. but now nice. a very I mean the you know uh Bill Ward the uh um drummer is basically Art Blakey but belting the skins a bit harder wow, amazing um yeah oh yeah he's not a he's not a keep time drummer mm. he's definitely he's a jazz drummer really um but yeah um I was quite inexplicably and, and I still can't remember why I got into heavy rock but I was and that meant wearing the denim jacket with all the patches on and I was like nine ten years old walking around like a little wannabe hell's angel um <laughs> And then I got into the whole two, especially living, we'd moved out of London up to Banbury, so I wasn't far from Coventry. So the whole two-tone thing. Yeah. Uh, then there was all the cultural influences from my parents and grandparents, with, especially from my nan, who used to be a singer in a jazz band during wow. the war. Yeah, yeah, she was with, um, yeah, I, I, I heard about this late on, that she was she sang in a, a jazz band with, with um uh, from the American Air Base uh, kind of thing. It was mm. all during the war. Oh, amazing. Uh, um, you know, and their record collection and my granddad's was like Nat King Cole and um, Ella Fitzgerald and wow. um, oh, just uh, Billy Holiday. So that that was all in my influences. But Tribal, I went from being in a heavy, you know, like a little rocker to a little skinhead to a little <laughs> mod. Uh, then I got into, and then, then I got into the sort of like, by the time I was 16, 17, I was into the Smiths and all that right. and like wearing a long trench coat and knew all the words to echo the bunny men and things <laughs> like that. 
And um, so while I was finding my way musically, I experienced a lot of brilliant music. Yeah. I always felt you had to belong to the tribe. And it wasn't really until... And then I started going to all these... I got in really into Brit funk and uh, around the age of sort of 17, 18, and I was listening to Paul Hardcastle and things mm-hmm. like that. And I'd always knew, listened to Motown because, again, that came from my parents and Philly because that was always good party music that we mm. used to hear a lot of the family do's. It's quite intertwined with mod culture as well, wasn't it? A little bit. Yeah, but I wasn't really. I wasn't really a mod. I just liked. I liked the fact that they the clothes look smart, right? <laughs> you know, because I tried being a skinhead and then just found it a little bit too brutal for me. You know, um, <laughs> even you know, like especially the, is at that time you did get the kind of the boneheads as well, the kind right. of NF boneheads, and I thought. I like the Fred Perry's, but I don't want anyone thinking I'm a bonehead. So I kind of swerved away from the, you know, sold my Harrington jacket and started wearing knitwear instead. <laughs> um, yeah, still had to stay pressed trousers, though. I remember that. Uh, white socks and loafers. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, as I started working out my own identity, I started realising that, you know, just dress for yourself and you can like any music you want. Right. But I firmly, by the time I was sort of 19, I was very firmly into, like, I was starting really, I was always collecting records anyway, even as a young kid, you know, from, from about the age of nine, eight or nine. But, um, I started buying for myself really seriously in my teens. And then when I started thinking about what I was really into, um, I, that's when I started buying black music and uh, in a big way and reading blues and soul probably by the time I was 19. Mm. And, um, you know, like going to the soul events and driving down to Hammersmith Odeon pretty much every other week to Amazing. go and catch it. You know, I went and saw loads of gigs at Hammersmith Odeon, and um, yeah, yeah. So, but so the tribe kind of became less identifiable because there was no real. By the time I was into it, like there was no real uniform. Mm. Were you, you know? surrounded by like buds all liking the same stuff as you, or were you finding us finding it somewhat of a solitary experience? Sorry, in what way? Sorry. Oh, just your transition into to, to that style of music. Uh, no, not really. No, it was um, it was all about going out and having a good time. And mm. um, so my mates who weren't as particularly, I, I tend to jump into things and get a little bit obsessive. But so my mates who weren't quite as obsessive of, of me still were coming along and enjoying themselves. Right. And so, like, I suppose the difference is I'm still collecting new music, but the guys I grew up with, uh, you go around there and they'll still be putting on the music uh, that was, like, what they were into in their early 20s. They're still listening to. Um, Nothing wrong with that at all. And then every now and then I'll play something and they'll go, oh, that's really good. And, Mm. you know, but they're not consciously looking for it in the same way as I still do. Yeah. But they're still into their music and um but mainly it was just going to the events and having a good time mm. and just being young men with no responsibilities. 
<laughs> so when did that you you kind of make that transition to wanting to play it and uh and 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 spin it and be you know a a, a, a tastemaker in that in that regard it would have been i can probably pinpoint the moment it would have been one of the i think i can't i'm just trying to remember if it was a prestatin or a southport weekend uh and I remember going into. The, I think I wrote about this in my blog. Um, I went. I went in. We were upstairs on the Saturday lunchtime, just basically nursing hangovers. Uh, it would have been one of the pressed out in weekenders, and we were nursing hangovers. And uh, we were sat in one of the upstairs rooms, which was the jazz room, and. Um, I just remember going to get the round of drinks in and never making it to the bar because whatever music was being played that Sunday after Saturday afternoon, I just hit that dance floor. <laughs> and, and I was watching all the real good jazz, like the IDJ guys and the real jazz dancers, thinking, oh, they're good. I didn't know who they were. Mm. I'd never, you know, I wasn't aware enough of what was what had been going on in London to understand um, that what that there was this jazz dance scene i just thought oh i love this music look how these people are dancing so i was just and i kind of sort of got caught up in it and like obviously i think made sure i didn't get in their way um but i kind of my mate my mate come over and he said you go to the bar and i said here you go and i gave him the money and then i i really enjoyed it and that's when i really got this idea that there was this link between the djs and what my uncle tony used to right. do when he used to pile the records up and i thought right i see what's going on here i'd like i want to do this and i never really went for it in a big way until i was it was probably about 1991 i thought yeah let's get some decks and do it was there and someone who kind of coached, sort of coached you in how to do it, or you just you got the decks and just went to town on them? Um, there's a guy. There were two guys actually. My a mate of mine, Wall and Andy Wallach, who uh, brilliant DJ. Um, he he actually showed me the mechanics of. You know, obviously it was all vinyl then. So he showed me the mechanics of making sure that when you queue it up, bring it back a quarter of a turn so you don't get the zoop sound, right, right. things like that. The actual mechanics of it. Uh, and then, but the guy that my very early influence was a guy, uh, again, in Banbury called Jamie Taylor, who's a really good, really, does really good. He, he hasn't done it for a while, but he's good remix and good, does good edits as well. But he... He shown, He was one of the guys that I very consciously looked at of how you build a set uh, and also go across genres as well because I never wanted to be stuck in one genre. Right. And he was very, very good at that. And I used to watch him. There used to be him and a guy called Dids used to DJ at the Winter Gardens in Banbury on a Tuesday night for the roller disco. And me and my mate John, we used to... I don't know how we used to get into the over 18s, but we, we, we'd we be in the queue for the over 18s and then see our school friends, some of whom were older than us, coming out of the under 18s. <laughs> but we got in and, and it was great. So, you know, but, but the music, even at the roller disco with all the sort of, uh, the kind of, uh, the you know, now we're going to do the that set of ramp up and all the brave people would, 
you know, in amongst all those aspects of the roller disco, the set building was brilliant. And I, I can remember thinking, nowhere else do I hear this music, you know, because they were mm. playing really good jazz funk. And first time I heard Go Go, you know, DC Go Go was right. when one of them played it one night. And I thought, what is this? This is brilliant. Amazing. Yeah, that that was sort of quite. Uh, that would have been some point in the eighties, probably mid mid eighties. It was one of the. It was Jamie played a go go track, and I thought this is unbelievable. <laughs> this is this is like the the most the, the most driven funk I've ever heard. Mm. And uh, and that was these guys that and yeah, and it was from them that I kind of understood the idea of you can mix music up and you can play thing. If you play it in the right place, it doesn't matter what you play. Yes. That's that. I, yeah, completely agree. And that's a fascinating sort of realization, isn't it? Because mm. that's something else that takes that kind of pretentiousness away from, from music as well. Something that like we were talking about earlier, something that you wouldn't at a younger age have deemed cool. Someone mm. does it in the right place at the right time. And you're dancing to a song that you, <laughs> you would have started the day, you know, cringing at or saying like, yeah. that isn't good. Yeah. But you know, the person does it at the right place at the right time. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, yeah, yeah. Brilliantly. Well, one, one of the classic sort of examples of that was when Stock Aiken and Waterman did Roadblock. <laughs> and whatever the reasons were for them to do it, even if it was maybe a bit sort of cynically proving a point, the fact of it was is even after everyone knew it was Stock Aiken and Waterman, if it got played at the right time, it would make people smile and they would dance to it. You know, it was one of those things. There's also, I mean, you, you look back at some of the early hip-hop and it's actually really quite cheesy, but it's still... <laughs> didn't alter the fact it was brilliant you know and that's it it's that open-minded thing but you're quite right there there would have been a point where you got i'm not dancing to this yeah but yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they yeah catch totally off guard isn't it so it's that's always yeah, yeah that's the yeah. that's quite a but, point of it but the whole that whole going across genre thing and just creating an atmosphere and a mood as well that's the other thing i like but um I and always that's... thought Nor- Norman Jay was good at that. And, mm. and uh, I remember in the early days, you know, in the early 90s, Jazzy B and, and H and Q were just superb at doing that. Uh, well, that's very much your MO now, though, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I um, I didn't, I didn't kind of realise how unconsciously I was doing that until... Um, until I started really looking back over the um, playlists on the radio show, mm. on the Illicit Groove show. And then I, I sort of thought, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you know, this is what I'm doing. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to not make myself bored. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think, yeah, so I look back over at some of my sort of best DJ sets that I've played and mm. I think, I can't believe I played that on that particular night in right. that particular club or that particular bar, but I did, you know, so it, it's amazing what you, you know, like throwing in a heaven 17 track, Yeah, not in any ironic sense, but you just think, you know what, if I was out there, I'd want to hear that now. Any, any uh, memories of trying something like that and it not going well? <laughs> um, 
Oh, I I think I played one of the night versions of um, a Duran Duran track. Oh wow! And the night the night versions are, are really good. They're kind of almost like you can imagine Niall Rogers had mm. mixed them. Um, and it started off really well, but then as soon as people realised it was Duran Duran, it was almost like it was too much for them. They walked <laughs> off. But luckily, luckily, it's a long, they're long versions, so it was I was able to bring something else in and rescue it. Right. But I think there was a little bit of once they realised it was Duran Duran, they weren't going to have any right. of it. You know, it's fine if it had been an instrumental, they'd have loved it. Um, because a, a case in point is. Um, Spandau Ballet and um, which Spandau Ballet was the band I least liked in the 80s, right? Until they did chant number one with um, Beggar and Co. because okay. I really like Beggar and Co. Mm. And then on the 12 inch, if you turn it over, the 12 inch is an instrumental. Um, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's basically a Beggar and Co track. Really, even though right, okay. even though even though um, uh, Gary Kemp wrote it, it's the way it's mixed and put together is in effect a beggar and co track, and it, it was um, so it's the big side of chant number one, but on the twelve, and it is an amazing track, and again it's like it's one of those ones though because it is an instrumental. It's not a There's nothing tree. there to spoil it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you put it on, everyone knows it's Spandau Ballet and Beggar and Co. Or, or, or if they don't, they're like, wow, why is this familiar? Right. And it's such a good... In um, copywriting, and it's uh, there's this concept called the aesthetic aha. And it's that moment where you can hear something or see something that you've never seen before but there's enough in there to make it familiar so you can make links. Right. And so even though it could be brand new, there's a, there's a little bit of a sort of synaptic link that makes you go, aha, I know this. And you, <laughs> you might not, but it's familiar enough for you to go along with. Okay. Yeah. But um, no, I do, you know, there's been times where I've had people come up and go, what's this crap you're playing? <laughs> and I think, well, you know, Obviously, when I got booked for this, they didn't know who I was, <laughs> or they had no idea. You know, I'm not a jukebox. <laughs> uh, how did the you mentioned this, obviously the the radio show and how that that kind of uh, perception of groove kind of translated over to uh, the radio show? How how did radio come about for you? When when did that become? I mean, do you look at that as just the natural extension of playing out or is that like a completely different experience for you? Um, I think it's a different experience. Um, uh, I mean, for a start, I'm not trying to get anyone on the dance floor for a start. Um, I'm not warming up for a big name DJ or anything Mm. like that. It's just a very self-contained two hours that I still consciously think about where it is in the schedule, obviously, and who is on before or after me. Um, I mean, you know, you're still trying to make sure there's a cohesion there. Um, But then that's also down to whoever's scheduling as well. Um, But the only, the way the show developed since I revealed, because I first did it as um, a pirate show back in the 90s. 
and we were broadcasting from different people's flats and um, aerials, stuck up trees, you know, like wow, overlooking the town, that kind of thing. And um, and that was great fun. Uh, we did it live a couple of times and had people on the door just in case to warn us if the DTI were coming. How, how, yeah. So how did that work? Like how... Like how, like how, how quick were they to figure out that somebody was broadcasting? Was there just someone constantly out in a van in certain areas, or like how, how do, how would they know? I think if you're in a city, they were constantly patrolling. Wow, you know, it was very different because uh, obviously, like in London, you had um, LWR and Kiss and. Um, um, Oh, I can't remember what was it. There was Solar was a pirate then. Uh, Starpoint was a pirate then. Yeah, yeah. You had so many of them, and they were all they were all in effect transmitting, or the aerials they were transmitting from were all Crystal Palace. So that right. you know, like on, so it's basically spread over London from the from Crystal Palace hmm. sort of thing, or high rises in North London and whatever. But um, I think when we did it in Banbury, it was such small fry that the only sniff we had of it uh, is when we saw someone using a handheld scanner and we thought, well, they, they're locating us, but they're not going to raid us. But we quickly shoved all the records in the loft <laughs> just in case. And then what we decided after that is we'd pre-record our shows and do it from cassette. So you'd do it on a 120 cassette <laughs> and then uh, you'd do 60 minutes and then there'd be a clunk, clunk while it reworked <laughs> and went back the other way. <laughs> and it was so funny. Yeah, That's, it was... Um, it's a very familiar sound, actually. <laughs> yeah. And, and, we kind of, and I made the decision I wouldn't even acknowledge that. Uh, you know, like some of, some of the others would sort of say, right, you're going to lose me for about four seconds, four or five seconds now, mm. ignore the clunk. But I just thought, I'm just not even going to acknowledge it. I'm going to carry on right. as though nothing happens. Um, and that was fun. But that, but uh, in recent years, um, ah, it was Starpoint, 2016. I went on Starpoint um, because Spot, who was the, the uh, techie guy uh, uh, who runs all the tech of mm. Starpoint Radio now as an internet. Um, he and I knew each other from the Southport days when Starpoint used to run the radio room in Southport. And um, in fact, I saw him the other day and we were laughing about this. There's a photograph of me. I would have been about 24, I guess. And Shantae Moore sat on my lap. Oh my God. Wow. Um, oh, oh yeah. 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 Well, I, it took me, took me years to stop dining out on that one. Um, <laughs> and, um, I mean, she was lovely. I mean, like, you know, for all the fact that she was also gorgeous is the fact that she was such a lovely, brilliant, talented, or is a lovely, brilliant, talented person. And wow. we had, really lovely chat it, it was great just to hang out but you know 24 year old me yeah just wow. bits that she was out of my lap and then there's a picture of spot sort of spots in the background they still got hair i've still got hair and <laughs> we're both a lot thin but we're talking about we bumped into each other the other day and we were chatting about that but um but what happened was is um he gate crashed a party i was at um and so I went over to the guy whose party was. I said, 
it's okay if they come in. And the, the guy said, yeah, of course, if their mates are yours, no problem. And then later on at the party, it was, I hadn't DJed for ages and it was one of my sort of, I wouldn't say a comeback gig, it, but it was one of the few gigs I did. And I was DJing and I think I threw in, again, one of those moments where you just think, I'm going to get away with this. And I threw in Japan, Quiet Life. Okay. And looked up and suddenly a very busy dance floor was ram. Oh, gosh, Absolutely. I thought it was going to go the other way for a second. <laughs> no, no, it went from busy to ram. Wow. It was brilliant because I was, all the other DJs have been playing great music. I've been, I was playing good music. And then I threw this one in and uh, as a bit of a curveball, but only because it's a good dance track. Mm. And um, and then after the spot come over, when I finished my set, I think I finished my set on, like on with Stetsasonic. Um, talking all that jazz so yeah. you know that's how I jumped about in love that, that record yeah track. oh yeah superb it's yeah. One, still one of my favorite tracks yeah awesome and um yeah and Spot said that was brilliant we got gap we've got a gap on Saturday afternoons on Starpoint do you want to join us and I said yeah lovely and thought how do I actually do this now uh it's not going to be on a cassette again is it mm. <laughs> so yeah I, I quickly very very quickly learned how to use Adobe Audition, and and uh, yeah, went back on Starpoint. So that was 2016. Um, yeah, it was 2016. I'm so trying to think. We might have had some crossover because I was on Starpoint for you were on about Starpoint too. Yeah, I was you? for about yeah. four or five years or so. Um, I had yeah. the worst slot. It was a Sunday morning, eight till ten in the morning. Oh um, wow! And, uh, <laughs> yeah. A hangover selection. Uh, oh god! Anyone that was kind enough to tune in, uh, then <laughs> yeah, then that that probably would have been that for them, but. Yeah, it's a terrible slot. I mean, you know, that's not a comment on star point, it's a comment on the slot. But um Yeah. Uh but yeah, so I had a few years there. So uh so yeah. 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 Well, I guess I was able to play my white privilege card and get a good slot. <laughs> <laughs> because let's be honest, the gatekeepers do do keep their gates, even if it's unconsciously or subconsciously. You know, it's something I, I talk about a lot with other people. The whole point, the, the whole idea of gatekeeping, even when it's uncon, you know, it's called unconscious bias. But I sometimes worry, wonder how unconscious it is. And half, do you know half Naji? Uh, oh, I feel like I do. Um, yeah, he, he works. He used to work at. Uh, oh, is it Honest John's? Um, I'll say I don't, but I feel like the name is somewhat familiar. Yeah, he's a brilliant DJ, brilliant right. DJ. But he said the same thing. He said he was talking about being an Asian, trying to get on radio, on black music radio. Right. And he said, you know, he said, like, they just seemed to be the gatekeepers. Would He said, like, the white guys would get the first call, right. without a doubt. So, <laughs> you know, like, and as a white guy myself, I see it. And I, I, I kind of understand recognize and acknowledge my white privilege i might not have class privilege but i've definitely got white privilege right. and male privilege and that extends even into or especially really into black music mm-hmm. and it's a it's wrong and it's a shame but i've got to admit it got me some good radio stuff. <laughs> <laughs> refreshing honesty <laughs> yeah but but you know like and and uh, and i but the thing is, is whatever slot you're given, you got to make it your own. And yeah, I remember Cole, Cole said that my for a Saturday afternoon, my show on the Starpoint, my show was a bit too left field. 
Oh, wait, he told me that as well. Yeah, yeah. and so, um, and I, it's his, you know, it's his station and I understand his vision, especially for the weekend. So I ended up going on a Friday night, I think it was, between 11pm and 1am. And I thought, well, that's okay, because so many of my listeners were in, uh, were, were outside of Europe, right. you know, like in the States, uh, especially, but also Japan. And I thought, well, that's all right then. Um, I mean, mainly in the States, it was perfect. It was basically mm. drive time. Yeah. So that was great. But then after a while, I thought, um, so I tried to make that slot my own. And I thought, that gives me carte blanche to do whatever I want. You see, that's, um, that's such an interesting... Um, when I very, very, very first started radio, my mindset was, it's my time and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I've cleared many a chat room. <laughs> right. And I, you know, because you stick to your guns and then you kind of realize that I think you, you sort of, so on the, this was for the first station I, I, I ever worked on. I was there for, for, for a couple of years. And I remember realizing that it, it, that, that term, it, it means something to say it's my time, but it's also, you have to consider the audience of the station. Yeah. That is actually what takes precedence, doesn't it? Because I can be, you know, uh, uh, not arrogant. I don't think that's fair to say that. But I can, you know, say I'm going to play this because this is what I want to play. But if people don't tune in for that, then yeah. you're hurting yourself and the station. So it Absolutely. becomes that two for them, one for you. And then it becomes about playing the right thing at the right time to and to to get that glorious question where they said where someone says, "Who's that?" And that's what we live for, I think, in many, many ways. And you kind of realize that you can play to yourself if you want, but that's who you're playing to. And, you know, and there's a chance you are that good and that in tune with what, what you know, what's what's the right thing to do that you'll just win people over. But then yeah. if you're just, if you're particularly if you're starting out, like I was at that time, it takes you a few years, I think, to find your your voice, your speaking voice and your music voice. You've got to be yeah. able to to really figure out who you are and what you want to convey because those early few years for me were way before Starpoint. But um those early few years for me which were as much as I loved them, they were just a train wreck because mm. you've got to figure it all out. And it, you know, that yeah, you've got to play to the station, I think. And uh, I did get that from Carl. And when because it was me who asked him, I kind of I wanted to know how, you know, what he he perceived of mm. the show i'd been there for a while and i i think the guy after me who was an absolute legend and he had three we both had weekly slots and he had three replays a week and i absolutely abs absolutely he deserved it he's he's a legend he's awesome that guy um actually i shall shout i'll shout out curly cj because he's just awesome and he deserved love that guy um and he uh taught me so much but like he um he he just he should have had seven replays a week, you know. But at that mm. point, I had I didn't have any, and I took that as like, am I doing something wrong? And when I asked Carl, he instantly said it. He didn't even pause. He just said, "I think it would be best if you played things in line with the other DJs." Yeah, and I didn't take offense to it because it just cemented that, yeah, it's it's not my time. If you know mm. what I mean, it's you've got to win people over, but you're playing to the station. I totally mm. understood it. But the one thing I'm used at is that station calls itself the real alternative. But then they wanted me to play things in line with <laughs> everyone else, which mm. which mm. made me laugh. But there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was in, 
you know, working in copyright, and one of the things that I always say to any, um, whether I'm working, whether I'm writing copy for a label or a radio station or a band or an mm. artist, I always say, don't make a boast you can't back up. You know, mm-hmm. like people will, if you want to come up with a logo or, a, uh, sorry, a slogan that go, you know, obviously every brand now has logos every brand now has a slogan or a strap line just make it one that doesn't date and right. make it one that and that's where i come in obviously as a copywriter mm. don't don't make an idle boast um right. because there may be a time when that slogan or that strap line is absolutely correct but it will date if you're yeah. not careful yeah and and uh, and that's it's just one of those things that happens. But I loved being on Starpoint. It mm. was great, and I think it was on after me Saturday afternoon. So I was followed by Bob Jeffries. Right. Uh, so I I think I was catching the early the people who were tuning in early for Bob. Uh, that was really cool. Right. So, and I I asked for feedback, and I said to Spot and to Cole, "What do you think?" And they just said, "You know, towards the end of the show, if you can bring it more in like." excuse me, with what Bob's playing. Right. And I thought, oh, that's fair enough. But it was clear in the, I always thought it in the schedules, it was always in the back of my mind that what I was doing did stick out like a sore thumb, mm. which was, I was very proud of the show and, and I still am, yeah. but it was in the wrong place. Yeah. And that's not, uh, and you know, like you got to, sometimes you got to hold your hands up and go, yeah, it was right that they'd moved my show. Yeah. Um, but then what happened was it was uh, then um, I moved to TWR and and was basically told I've got carte blanche to do whatever I want. Mm. They wanted to build up the Sunday schedule and create a Sunday schedule that was slightly different to the rest of the week. And so that was me, then Bob Jones... And then every other week, Dave Lynn. And that really, really worked. We we kind of created it. And then the DJs that then came on later in the evening, like Curtis Powers and um, uh, Robert Lewis um, from the, from True Thoughts. True Thoughts yeah. yeah, I mean, um, brilliant label. Power, yeah, and amazing his, label. And his show is fantastic. But his show and my show, I think, bookended a really good run of music for the sort of 12 hours on that Sunday and really worked. And then when Bob retired and uh, Kev Beadle came from the Monday night to the Sunday afternoon, mm. that really worked. And, um, you know, it, it, we were a bit more left field. Uh, we were a bit more reliant on new music, but we were also, especially Bob and Kev, uh, have just got these amazing record collections where they can delve into the archives without it being a kind of capital gold show. You know, do, do, do you know what I mean? They yeah. can play old music, yeah. but I'll be listening going, wow, I've never heard this before. Yeah. You know, and, and then like sitting there with a pen and paper and, and also a calculator wondering if I could afford it <laughs> and thinking, I want this, I need to get hold of this. Where can I get this from? Yeah. And then it'd be like, you know, oh, that was so-and-so. And I'm thinking, but I've got loads of records by that artist. How come I don't know that track? And it's because Bob Jones and Kev Beadle have, are just brilliant archivists. Mm. 
they they buy music and they get to know the music so well that you can only learn from them right uh, it's um and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about about going cross genre yeah about not really fussing too much about whether the artist is cool i mean there's so much brilliant jazz fusion from the 80s mm. that if you looked at the album cover they look like extras from dynasty <laughs> you know right. so like, and you look <laughs> at them and you would think oh my god what's going on there but then you put the record on and it's brilliant yeah. you know despite the linen suit and the open neck shirt and <laughs> the slightly california tan right I'm trying to think of other other. There's got to be other names from that era that that have that look, but you know when when you just to look at them, you think like flock of seagulls or something like that. But then <laughs> when you press play, you're like, what the heck? This is completely not why envisaged mm-hmm. at all. But there's, well, there's I, so I just think if you don't, if you had no prior knowledge of say David Sanborn or right. Lee Rittner or Larry Colton, yeah. Uh, I mean, if you look at a Larry Colton album cover with 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 him on the front cover with his blonde mullet and his denim jacket and all that, you think you think it was a heavy rock album or right. or even or even worse, you think it was some kind of like that kind of weird eighties rock yeah. that um that was rock music that didn't rock out. Yes. <laughs> you know, quite flat <laughs> you know, like this f- soundtrack to uh, a John Hughes film kind of that awful bland music that used to soundtrack John Hughes films, <laughs> 16 Candles or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there'd be like some aging rocker and you, that, that wasn't rocking at all. And you'd think that, but you put the album on and it is, the, and then you look at who's on the track list and you think, oh, Marcus Miller's on the bass. Right. <laughs> you know, things like that. Do you think and, that that's important? Do you think that like how you present yourself in regards to what you're playing, do you think that's important? Because do you think that obviously with with the examples you just gave there was a chance you would have completely passed it by so do you think an artist has that responsibility i suppose being on the promo side of things as you are yeah. uh, do you think they have that responsibility of you, you need to address how you look because that can dictate you know that you know, it gives people another inclination of what you're what you're about musically uh again it goes back to that thing with the copyright and is don't do anything that dates you um so if you look at say some of the blue note album covers from the 60s and even the 50s um apart from some of them show people smoking which you just wouldn't see anymore right um they're so i mean you get the john coltrane ones and the miles davis ones they're so well dressed um and there's no they're actually photographed playing music so they're doing what they do yeah uh, so it looks, it, it, even though you can date someone by those album covers, it doesn't look dated. If that, if if yeah. if that makes sense, sure. um, mm-hmm. because they're such kind of cool, iconic covers of people actually doing what they do, um, and you've got that. But also the photography is amazing. The composition is amazing. So you got that, and then you have got the very there's some brilliantly designed album covers um, like the on the corner album cover, Miles Davis on the corner and bitches brew Yeah, perfect. where it's art 
it's like especially bitches brew which is a collage you know but it's art it's um that that kind of having an album cover is art is um if you've got a good artist obviously <laughs> you need a proper genuinely great artist to do it uh but that really works and um i think in the 80s especially there was this and that went into the 90s a bit as well there was this thing where everybody seemed to have to look like they were an extra from Miami Vice right. <laughs> and be photographed looking like they were in Miami. Right. And uh, and the only one who really got away with that, because she is from Miami, was, was a series of Betty Wright albums oh, right, where yeah. she was on the cut and she looked great. Right. And the album, and like you look at the clothes she's wearing, and yes, you can tell that's from the 80s, but there's nothing going on there that is just particularly in that moment it it's you can tell they're they're 80s clothes wearing but what you're actually looking at is a really good picture of betty Wright. yeah you know and so there you know so it's like it's a fine line sometimes but mm. um but it is it's that thing of um do you want to be looking at this in 20 years time yeah and yeah. see it but but yeah it's it's easy to flip past an album code it's a bit like book covers as well mm. You know, yeah, like absolutely. You, you buy a book just based on the cover. You can judge a book by its cover a lot of the time. You know, it's mm. very reasonable to judge a book by its cover, and it's very reasonable to judge judge an album by its cover. Yeah. But you just got to be very careful how you do it. You look on the back and think, who else is on this album? Yes. And once you recognise a couple of the names, you think, I'll give that a go. Hmm. There's a contemporary uh, harpist that I believe she's London based, certainly UK based, called Tori Hansley. Um, yeah. which and and again musically so vastly different she looks like a, she's rockabilly you know yeah, she's yeah, got the leather yeah. jacket she's you know the whole look about you know yeah. she's got that the, the punk rocker yeah. kind of aesthetic about her yeah. uh, but musically i never would marry the two things up mm. so yeah it, it's interesting about how you present yourself mm. in regards well, to snowboy snowboy's well, uh, yes. a great example yes, i mean he is a rockabilly yes <laughs> he's a rockabilly he's also one of the best latin percussionists yeah, that's a that there's point. ever been yeah you know, and, uh, yeah, but uh, the Tory Hansley album, I mean, what a brilliant album that it's was great album. Two, two years ago. What great, yeah. that was one of yeah. those got me through lockdown albums. Oh, sure. wonderful, yeah, yeah, uh, that was, yeah, yeah, Moses Boyd on drums as well. It's, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's such great energy about some of those songs yeah. in particular, yeah. just yeah, fire. And that, that's the other thing, a bit like looking at those sort of 80s feud, jazz fusion guys. Uh, Chick career and people like that. When you look at the lineups, how they're all sitting on in, sitting in on each other's albums. Right, that's one of the things I love about the. Um, I owe so much to even wanting to get back into being on the radio and playing music and being back in the music scene. Uh, I took a big break when my son was little. And I got back into it because my son wasn't little anymore and I realised how much I missed it. Mm. And one of the things that got me back in was Nubia Garcia, Moses Boyd, Chewbacca Hutchins, right. that whole scene, that whole kind of South London scene yeah. that had bubbled up because of Tomorrow's Warriors, because yeah. of Jazz Refreshed, because of Total Refreshment Centre. Um, and and then from the uh, there were two albums that came out from the states as well it was uh kamazi washington's the epic right and, gosh uh, four discs Idris, is it yeah 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 brilliant 
and then Idris Hackamore in the pyramids, we be wow. Africans. We're, we're all Africans. Right. And those two albums and everything that was happening with Steam Down and Nubar Garcia and Shabaka and Moses Boyd, Rye Lane Shuffle and tracks like that yeah. got me really wanting to get back into music mm. and and back in the scene and, and sort of see if my old contacts in my contact book still existed and things yeah. like that. And it was great. I started going to gigs again. I was surprised that people remembered me. I thought, oh, no one's going to remember right. me. And, uh, but I thought, well, that's fine. It is what it is. You know, I, my ego is fairly malleable these days. It's not <laughs> a problem. Um, uh, but it was lovely, actually, to realise that this scene was still happening. But it was also new. There was new talent and new freshness coming in. Yeah, and so and young many, as well. Yeah, and how great it was that some of the, even the older DJs were picking up on it and yeah. not gatekeeping it. Yes, they were like none. Of, there wasn't too much of. There's back in the day, and back in the day, DJs and broadcasters, or from back in the day, that are a vital resource. They're brilliant archivists and also brilliant at presenting different aspects of culture and you just think yeah they they move with the times but not in that following fashion sense mm. but in still seeking out new music and i mentioned like bob jones and kev beadle and others like that um they're also the back in my day kind of djs and i'm just not interested in them because right. they've got brilliant record collections but it doesn't feel like they've added very much to those collections since 1994 kind of thing. Hmm. And so there's back in the day and back in my day and back in my day, I'm not interested in because there's too much brilliant new music to be stuck in your own, you know, you trying to, you know, trying to remember, recapture your own salad days through your record collection. Hmm. You know, I love playing back. I've got a bit in the show that I call back in the day belters yeah. and where I do kind of think, yeah, I used to love this track. I'm going to play it. Um, and they are back in the day belters, but that's because it's a nice juxtaposition with all the new and the recent music that yeah. I do play. And, um, yeah. And, uh, that whole scene of new music, which was blending everything that was fantastic about homegrown UK black music. Yeah. So everything from Brit funk to drum and bass to UK garage to jungle is all wrapped up and, and Afro beat as well, especially mm. with like um, Ezra Collective and Kokoroko. Kokoroko, yeah. Yeah, is all blended into this jazz-based or jazz-wrapped uh, melting pot of UK black music. Mm. Uh, which is also obviously then open to white artists as well. Mm. You know, it's not, no one's being excluded from it, but there's a big recognition of this is black music and this is UK black music with all the influences of musicians whose parents came from the Caribbean, musicians whose parents and grandparents came from West Africa. Mm. You know, all that is being mixed in. And uh, and it just excited me so much that I just kind of knew that that was going to be the bedrock of 
what my radio show would be, what yeah. the Illicit Groove show would be. I wasn't just going to play my 90s record collection. It's a wonderful thing to sort of have seen unfold. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 be, it's grown so far beyond just, say, being a London-based fad. I mean, yeah. you know, Maisha doing a whole record with and tour with Gary Bartz, Nubaya oh, Garcia yeah. Uh, yeah. being signed to Concord Jazz, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Blue Note Revisited series, two volumes in the space of two years where they've just handed their catalogue over. It's yeah. amazing, isn't it? The, the fact yeah. that it's transcended. Makai McRaven yeah. has come over and actively sought out uk musicians for albums i mean yeah it's yeah. it's a really thrilling thing to sort of see unfold and just to kind of look back at it and just be like i can't even keep up with the purchases now you know there were some distinctive mm. names but it just seems as the months go there's more and more and more and labels are getting mm. stronger as well so it's yeah. a wonderful thing to see unfold so yeah well uh i was talking to uh some considerably younger friends of mine and they were sort of saying that they'd heard this music and they really like it. And they said to me, you know, like, um, you know, I really want to sort of learn more about this. So I pointed them to the Jazz Refreshed right. 5 series. Yeah. And I said, doesn't, I said, look, you know, some of them are sold out on vinyl. You'll, you, I said, you know, but you've got the download or the CD options as well. But there's a good place to start. And... I see these people, you know, like I've spoken to them and then they're like, yeah, I bought the Blue Note reimagined, isn't oh, that brilliant? Amazing. And and you just think, yeah. And, and they probably, just because they're youth, they might not totally understand the significance of those art, new artists sure. being basically given carte blanche. Yeah. On, what did they, what on the back catalogue. Yeah, yeah. And and it just sort of, it's that gatekeeping thing. Don Wass. Mm is the head of Blue Note yeah. and now. And, you know, his gatekeeping style is to open the gate. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, okay, you know, this is possibly still an issue that you got a white guy in charge of all that black music. But if he's opening the gate up to black artists and, and new artists to basically fill their boots, mm. then that's the kind of gatekeeping that's all right. Yeah. Blue Note are generally quite open about um, open like various interpretations of their catalog from remixes. They, you know, there's a Japan yeah. Blue Note Street uh, version of of, of that uh, sort of release as well. So it's mm. it's it's awesome how they kind of it's not just best ofs, best ofs, best ofs. It's, yeah, you know, it's like let's explore this wonderful catalog of music and get new perspectives on it. And it's a yeah, it's a thrilling thing to see. And again, the the distinction and honor for it for the like the UK. Uh, guys to sort of be bestowed it it wasn't it wasn't lost on me for a moment i was yeah i was i was thrilled for w all involved and yeah i can't imagine the, the joy that you know each of them would have had to say oh, i've been on blue note records i mean how how awesome is that yeah oh yeah i mean what is, you know it's like that kind of it's like a badge of honor isn't yeah. it yeah gotcha yeah 
Um, I definitely, I, I, I'm, I'm conscious of your time, but I have one more thing I really wanted to ask you about, uh, okay. if I may. It's about your uh, Talking the Groove podcast, um, yeah. which is, 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 which is a wonderful, uh, really insightful a series of, of conversations. I was listening to the Tess Hurst one. Uh, I yeah. was actually, I caught the Tess Hurst episode in complete honesty before you and I even had contact. Um, oh, cool. So I was listening to that one. And I thought it was awesome to hear her perspective on, on stuff. She had obviously had the Daniel Casimir collaborative record out, and it was called. So it was a, it was a really enjoyable episode. So I recently caught the Camilla George one as well because she's she's awesome. Another really uh, insightful conversation. How do you enjoy being on that 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 side of things? The sort of engaging with the artist and and kind of mm. talking to them is that the process you enjoy? I love it because at heart I'm still a fanboy, and um, and because those new artists especially have totally revitalized and brought back my love for music and my joy for it. Mm. I'm also very grateful to them. Um, but yeah, it fascinates me as somebody who loves music, but can't play a note, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I think I said this before, um, you know, if I do karaoke, it comes with a health warning. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, no, I'm not that bad. I can hold a tune, but you know, um, <laughs> you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want more than one off me. But um, you know, it's, uh, my my go to is um, Chris Chris Officers, um, me and Bobby McGee. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So my go to karaoke tune is uh, country song. Awesome. You know, Mine is yeah. Hey Ya by Andre 3000. <laughs> oh, nice one. Yeah, no, it isn't. Cool. It actually isn't. I can tell you now. No, it, yeah. it isn't a nice one at all. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, interviewing these um, these people who, who absolutely deserve to be regarded as artists is for me it's fascinating i get a great insight into their creative processes um i i kind of read what they've said in other interviews and i pick up on something that may just have kind of not seem important at the time and i think no that fascinates me um i suppose there's a little bit of journey you know like um it's that true sense of journalism that you're trying to you're trying to find unpick a truth, if you like, without um, without lecturing anyone uh, for a start. You know what I want to do is hear what they have to say, and I try and build on things that they've already said and and try and get behind that a bit more. And I love it. And 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 speaking to those people is. You know Camilla George and Tess Hurst and Ayana Witter Johnson and um, you know it was such a pleasure. I I've got one that isn't in this that I it's actually still stuck on my mix cloud somewhere that I've got to add in where I spoke to Idris Ackermore oh, wow. and Sandy Poindexter from the Pyramids. Oh, amazing! That was fantastic because I I I was. Uh, afterwards, Idris went off, and Sandy and I, Sandra Poindexter, the jazz violinist, we we went out coffee, and she said to me, "No one has ever asked us those kind of questions before." Oh wow! And, um, and I wasn't deliberately setting out to be different to anyone else, mm. but I just wanted to ask about the things that actually interested me. Yeah, and um, and so I get to do that, and that's kind of 
it's kind of nice to be able to get to ask somebody a question that 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 you really want to ask them anyway. Yeah. So it's good. I mean, chat with Cleveland Watkins was great because Amazing. I asked one question and then never had to ask a question again for about another <laughs> half an hour. He's got so much knowledge and passion and feelings and and uh, stories and and ideas that you mm. can just bring in as the answer to one question. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, in short, I just enjoy being out to ask the questions that I would actually want to genuinely ask. Wow. Um, and the next episode, I'm just sort of uh, confirming the time, is with uh, Adja, who's a brilliant singer uh, based in Belgium. Oh, wow, she, amazing. Yeah, she's got tracks out on Esteban Records, a uh, brilliant EP called I and I, which is coming out. Oh, Not awesome. I and I, I on, as in the metal I yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that's coming out in um, end of Feb. And it's a lovely EP. She's got a great voice. Oh, we can all explore uh, further. That sounds awesome. Yeah, looking forward to talking mm. to her. So I've got this wish list of people I want to speak to. And, you know, I've, uh, so far, most people get back to me and and they're lovely. Yeah. Any chance you get the Kemps on there? <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> I would happily speak to Gary Kemp because he was the songwriter. Yeah. And that's what fascinates me, that creative process. Yeah. Uh, that's more, it's, um, uh, I don't know enough about what the others ever did, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> uh, but Gary Kemp was always like the, 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 the songwriter. So it's a bit like, you know, there was, I'd love to speak to David Sylvian. Wow. From Japan. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to, well, I would have loved to have spoken to Mick Khan, but obviously, you know, unless I can find a medium, that right. ain't going to happen. Um, yeah. But, you know, there are, there are certain people that just exude artistry hmm. and creativity. Uh, I mean, Brian Eno's one as well, yeah, but he's been interviewed. Well. So, I mean, he's been interviewed so many times, I don't think I could find anything new to ask yeah. him. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's a, but the, the, the people that I've been lucky to speak to over the years for the talk in the groove have been fascinating, you know, and not all of them are particularly famous either. I did a lovely one with Arema Arega oh, that um, we, she's, she's, uh, she's uh, a Cuban Ethiopian born mm. in Russia born in, well, the Soviet Union, uh, now lives in Barcelona. I met up with her in Perpignan. We had a lovely chat. And uh, and then I I managed to edit together some of it. And then, unfortunately, some of it got wiped. Oh, no. Yeah, so I'm going to rearrange and I'm going to do another one with her now. Mm. Um, So I need to rearrange that. But, again, I I was fascinated by her as much as her music. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and that's it. It's that all-round thing package. You got the art and the artist. Yeah, and and I want to know that creative process. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and it shows, I suppose, that that it, that well, that fascination, that that inquisitive kind of uh, mind. But it's yeah, it's 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 an extension of your kind of celebration of music, you know, through each of your varying projects and and things like that. And uh, yeah, it, it comes through. I, I did find your 
your conversation is really insightful. Uh, you know, I suppose oh, you, you. you always look at like what the obvious questions are and you just don't ask them, <laughs> you <laughs> know, you, you can't because if you've been yeah. asked a hundred times, yeah. then that oh. can't be the direction to go in, isn't it? And yeah. Yeah, I picked up on that one from you quite, quite quickly, actually. So, uh, so well, yeah. it must be quite, it must be quite frustrating to keep being yes. asked, where do you get your ideas from? Yes. <laughs> Or if you're a Gallagher, when are you, when are you going to reform Oasis? Oh, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, if yeah. I ever spoke to a Gallagher, it would be the last. I, I just, it was not an existing question. Do you know what I mean? So like, no. why would why would anyone ask that? But anyway, yes, I have the same approach. I do it well. I, I do my very best to, to tackle a conversation in the same way. You know? Well, I always think of, uh, I can't remember the, the guy's real name, but he did this character called Dennis Penis. Oh my gosh! Oh, um, what is? Yeah, um... yeah. And he and he would ask, and it, it kind of almost like an another version of Alan Partridge. Yeah, in the sense that he would ask the most stupidly obvious questions <laughs> and get them wrong. And there was one where he he said to Tom Hanks, "What was it like playing Forrest? And then before Tom Hanks could answer, and he, he he said something like, "And do you think you'll be playing Villa next week?" Yeah. <laughs> turned into a football question. Did he? Did he get the football reference? No. no. Well, that was the thing. I thought it was. A, that's where it fell down for me. Was that you know, like you know, if, if the person you're asking doesn't get the reference, you're actually being quite nasty. I suppose but, so. You, you feel like you're being mocked, isn't it? He was the American. Yeah. He, he had the fake American accent, didn't he, Dennis Penis? I I I can't remember. I just remembered little bits of it right. because. But but the point the point is is like so many bona fide uh, oh I say bona fide journalists I mean so many people who are interviewing will ask those type of questions yeah, yeah. but in all, like Alan Partridge or Dennis Bendis type questions yeah. but in all seriousness and you think oh gosh show some imagination yeah yeah it's um, yeah it's a bit like the um, I can always remember on Wogan once, Ben Elton sat in and, you know, uh, got nothing against Ben Elton in particular, and in fact, I quite like Ben Elton. Um, but he had a guest on and I think it took him like three minutes before he asked his first question. And you think, oh, it's not about you, Ben, it's about right, the guest. Right, I see, yeah. You know, and, and I try and always put that in my mind that you know I mean it's different I'm on the other side with mm. this conversation so I've got as far as I'm concerned you've got to listen to me <laughs> <laughs> but but genuinely if I'm asking the questions when I edit I edit me out as much as I possibly can mm. and and that's not saying that that's what everyone should do that's just how I do it mm. because it's it, it's my guest who's important um, in that sense, because I, otherwise I will just do a podcast where I talk to myself. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it is interesting. I, I, I yeah, it's yeah. I guess I look. I go into these things thinking it's a uh, yeah. It, it's it is a great platform to to kind of get to unpick that 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 creative process, as you say. Get to kind of give people a platform to talk about things that maybe they don't you know, aren't able to, uh, so it's, it's wonderful to be able to do it. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've enjoyed yours and uh, I look forward to more. 
Thank you. Thank yeah. you. That's lovely to hear. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, and well, I guess my final point, man, uh, I, I, I'm beyond thrilled, beyond excited to be able to uh, to bring Illicit Groove Show to, you know, to be able to partner with you uh, for the Illicit Groove Show going forward on on, on Blue and Green Radio. Um, and uh, yeah, I just uh, I want to thanks for the thank you for the trust. Thank you for the uh, uh, the faith. And um, yeah, I, I very much look forward to to kind of uh, to working with you going forward, buddy. Oh, me too. I'm really looking. I really am. I mean, I, I'm uh, gonna. I, I love this the fact that I felt like I did when I went on TWR for the first time. Cool. That idea of trying to build that Sunday identity mm. or that identity in the schedule. So that's really exciting for me as well. Amazing. Um, and it's it, so it. The website looks so professionally run with the podcast and the reviews as oh, well wow. is fantastic. And I just sort of thought, oh, yeah, I like it. You know, I, I want to be part of this. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. 